0: Welcome to Real Life Church. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us online at reallifeankeny.org. Now let's join this week's service, Already in Progress. The song we sang a little bit ago says the words, For you are for us, you are not against us. Aren't those amazing words? Could you imagine if you and I lived every moment with a consciousness that God was for us and that he was not against us? Not just it's out there somewhere that I kind of access it from time to time. But the banner over our lives was this. God is for me. He is not against me. Christians above all, among all people ought to be the most hopeful people in the world. Because we can say that truthfully. God is for me. He's proved it through Jesus Christ. So we ought to be beaming with hope. Hope has taken on a different meaning in our day, of course. Hope sometimes is seen as nothing more than a desire. Someone might say, a child or or an adult, that matter, might say, I hope I get what I want for Christmas. They're they're communicating a desire of what they want, and they're hoping or desire something for Christmas. We'll see if they get it. Sometimes hope, oftentimes hope, many times hope, I use the, the, the word hope in this way, is used in kind of a whimsical, wishful thinking kind of way, right? I sure hope the Bears make it to the playoffs. Amen. Whimsical hope, right? Whimsical wish. I was going to put Super Bowl there, but you guys might think I'm insane. <clears throat> okay? This is not how the Bible uses the word hope. The Bible doesn't when the Bible uses the word hope it's not talking about it in either of these ways so I looked up the word hope in Webster's dictionary not the new Webster's but an old Webster's from 1828 or something and here's how it defined the word hope to place confidence in to trust in with confident expectation of good let me read that again hope means this to place confidence in or to trust in with confident expectation of of good. This is the kind of hope God wants Christians, believers in Christ, to have. This is the kind of hope God wants you to have. Jonathan Edwards once said God is wont to open a door of hope, a door through which there flashes a sweet light out of heaven upon the soul. Then comfort arises, and then there is a new song in the mouth, even praise unto our God. For he is for us. He is not against us. This is the kind of hope Jesus has died to give us. Every person who believes in Christ, I mean, really believes in him, should be able to have a confidence that the future is bright. We don't know what tomorrow holds for us. We don't know what this afternoon holds for us. We don't know what 10 years from now holds for us. But brothers and sisters, we know our future is bright in Christ. Isaiah 59 is about hope. It's meant to lift you and I up to see God as our only hope, to actually see him as our only hope, and then to actually put our hope in him. It's one thing to see God as our hope and then leave and say, and then functionally put our hope in all kinds of other things. But to see him as our only hope, pull the rug out of everything else so we see God as our only hope and then to actually put our hope in him. To get there, however, we need to work through verses 1 to 15 because it shows us obstacles to hope and what God does to overcome all of these obstacles so that we can be foundationally, fundamentally people of hope. Hope does not require you and I to deny or hide from bad things That are going on at the ground level. We see things going on. Things in our own lives. Things we even struggle with ourselves. We don't need to deny them. We don't need to somehow hide from them. Or bury our head in the sand. We can turn on the evening news. And see that there are things that are not good going on in the world. Hope does not require that we hide from those things. Or deny them. In fact, I would say biblical hope requires that we look at these things squarely and then look through them and see a God who will triumph over them all. And he will do it on our behalf through Christ. So here in Isaiah 59, we start off with a sobering reality that oftentimes when God seems distant from us or seems distant from a group of people, or even a nation, it is because of sin. Whether it's an individual, a church, a nation. God says, my arm is not short that I can't save. I have not grown deaf over time. I can save, and I hear. But your sins have built this separation between you and me, is what God is saying. And the sins listed in verses 1 to 15. Our sin are primarily social sins, sins of abusing one another, whether verbal or physical. Talks about shedding innocent blood, blood on our hands and our fingers, but it also talks about speaking lies and not speaking justly. So primarily, the kinds of sins that are in view here is the sins in the way that we treat other people, other image bearers of God. Verse 10 uses vivid metaphors to describe the moral confusion that God is addressing here. It says, we grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. Moral confusion. Again, in verse 11, powerful metaphors describing the utter anguish that this sin and darkness and evil and injustice leads to. Verse 11 says, we all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. We want salvation, but it is far from us. To sum up, and a word that is used all throughout Isaiah 59, five or six times, is injustice, or justice, excuse me, the word justice. Justice is nowhere to be found. Justice is lacking. Oppression is rampant. Now, justice in the Bible means much more than just an individual breaking a specified law and paying the legal consequences for it. It's much broader than that. Justice in the Bible has to do with people getting their due, getting what they deserve. Not in the sense that they deserve mercy and grace from God, but what they deserve from other human beings. They deserve to be cared for. They deserve to be respected. They deserve to be, they deserve measure and a kind of honor. Think of the golden rule. Jesus said, essentially, treat others the way you want to be treated. Now, of course, this is problematic in the world, isn't it? For we can look out into the world and see how there is gross injustice in the way that people are treated by other people. But this is also problematic for us. When I read through these verses, verses 1 to 15, or verses 1 to 13, I can certainly look out and and point to other people. But if I'm honest with myself, I can point to the problems in me. So verses 14 and 15, or excuse me, When there is this injustice, this sin, this evil that is rampant, it creates a sense of hopelessness because God is not in it. God is far away from that. God says, I am not in that. No matter how religious it may be, I'm not in it. I am distant. I am far away from that. And so verses fourteen and the first part of fifteen sums up where a society or a group of people goes when God is absent. It's sobering. Justice is turned back. Justice is turned backward. You guys are you know the lady, um, Lady Liberty statue. She has blindfold over her eyes and she has scales in her hands. The point is that justice is meant to be objective and clear. Here it's saying justice is turned backwards. Righteousness stands far off. It stands aloof in a group of people where God is not there. The truth stumbles in the public square. Truth There's no publicly acknowledged standard of it, of truth. Error is proclaimed and readily accepted by people, by the people. And uprightness cannot enter in. There's no room for uprightness in the room of public opinion when God's not there. Darkness reaching a climax where those who do good or depart, it goes on to say in verse 15, that darkness reaches this climax where those who do good or, or even just want to depart from evil are viewed as prey, right? Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Someone who departs from evil, someone who wants to do right and do good, they're actually seen like a pack of wolves would see a lone sheep. It sums up the world system in Isaiah's day. And it certainly is not that unlike our day today. You may think, I thought this was a message about hope. It is, I assure you. Because this is the kind of situation, verses 1 to 15, where God steps in. When we see things just like, whoa, you know, I mean, God is good. And I know that personally, but I look out there and I'm like, there's some bad stuff going on in the world. We should be looking for God to step in. We should be praying for God to step in. This is a situation in Isaiah's day where Isaiah says, get ready. And this is a situation, even in our day, we have hope that God will step in and act. Verses 15, the last part, and verse 16, I think is a central part of our text. It says, The Lord saw it, and it displeased him, and that there was no justice. Verse 16, He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Some might say, well, it seems like God has kind of taken off, Off guard or by surprise here? No, I don't think so. Um, I think the point of these verses is twofold. One, God is not indifferent to injustice and evil and darkness. He is outraged by it. He sees it and he is displeased. He doesn't wink at it. He doesn't let bygones be bygones. He is outraged. And two, he saw that there was no man. Only God is our hope. He's our only hope. There is no man who can fix this kind of situation. Only God. And don't we want to see what God can do? Not just what a bunch of people can do. When we, I mean, man, man, man can do a lot of things. When we put our heads together and agree and have a measure of unity, we can do stuff. But I want to see what God can do. Knowing that God is our only hope is a great place to be. He's my only hope. He's your only hope. He is the world's only hope. President Obama is not our hope. Or who you may want to be the next president. Whoever that is. You guys are laughing about, okay. You might say, that's obvious. Okay. But you fill in the blank. Who do you want to be the next guy or gal? They're not our hope either. Congress is not our hope, or if we get the right people in there. It's not our hope. The Supreme Court is not our hope. The UN is not our hope. The Nobel Peace Committee is not our hope. The CDC is not our hope. Doctors cannot solve our problems. Our problems are too big. There is no man who can do it. They will not be. They cannot be solved by men. God must step in. God must act. And this gives us hope. For Christians, it gives us hope. Verses 16 to 20, I want you to see that we can have hope. In our day, right now, based on solid truth, looking our circumstances straight in the face, our personal individual circumstances and looking at our world straight in the face and in defiance to it all have hope. Okay. I want you to see that you can have hope because of three things because of God's finished work in the past because of God's real time action in the present and because of God's promised action in the future. We can have hope because of God's finished action in the past. Verse 16 and 17, he saw there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. God could find no man to intercede, to stand between his people and his judgment that would inevitably come upon them. So he took action. And what did he do? He sent Christ. He sent Jesus. This is our hope, right? God's past action. He sent Christ. Christ clothed with righteousness and salvation came. He came to deal with evil and sin and unrighteousness and injustice, yours and mine. So what does it mean that he came dressed in righteousness and salvation? Well, the clothing imagery is metaphoric for how he manifests himself. I think it means this. When Jesus came, he had to do two things. He had to uphold God's righteousness And make a way for sinful people to be saved. Right? So he put on a breastplate of righteousness and a helmet of salvation. He came to uphold God's righteousness and save sinful people like you and I. Romans 3 says that God sends Christ to accomplish redemption that shows him to be both just or righteous and gracious or able to justify ungodly people. That's what we need, right? We don't want God to be unjust, do we? We don't want an unjust judge for God, do we? Who knows? Maybe he'll get finicky someday and just cast all of us into hell. We don't want that. We want a God who is just and righteous, and we want his standards to be upheld, and Jesus did that. But we desperately want salvation, don't we? We want him to be gracious to us, undeserving people, don't we? Of course we do. When I see, when I look at verses 1 to 8, I see my need for a Savior. I don't know if you do or not. I see my need for a Savior. I see my need even right now to be justified before God. Because I know myself. I know myself. I can put on a good front. Maybe you can too. But I know some of the sinful inclinations in my heart. I need to be justified before God. That's what Christ has done. So Christ is the one who intercedes. No man could do it. No mere man, I should say, because Jesus is the God man. But no mere human being could do it. Jesus did it. He came to intercede. He came to come between God's wrath and you and I. He stood between us. He took the bullet you deserved and I deserved. He took the judgment you deserved and I deserved so that God could be righteous and gracious. He accomplished salvation for undeserving people like those described in verses 1 to 8, verses 1 to 15, really. This settles the issue once and for all. For he is for us. He is not against us. Because this righteous God did exactly what he needed to do in order to accomplish a salvation for totally undeserving people. I'm not talking about people out there. I'm talking about we're in a room full of them. All of us here. We're in the same boat. None of us deserve this gracious salvation that Christ has brought. He stood between you and God's wrath. He stood between me and God's wrath. He took it in himself so that God could be seen as righteous, as just, not letting sin off the hook. He does not sweep it under the rug. He punishes it, and he did it in Christ. But he could also be the justifier of those who believe in Jesus So we could have salvation. What a Savior. What a Savior we have in Christ. What a Savior we have in God. He did not sit around waiting to see if we'd come around. He didn't sit around waiting to see if maybe someday there would be a man. Maybe someday you and I would come on the scene, right? He didn't do it. We never would have. We never would have come. He sent Christ. We can have hope today because of God's action in the past. We can also have hope today because of God's real time action in the present. Right now, today, God's action. Verse 17, the first part again says, He put on a, a righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on His head. Do these phrases sound familiar? To you, if you were to fast forward into the New Testament, breastplate of righteousness, helmet of salvation. Of course, in the well known section Paul wrote on the armor of God in Ephesians 6, it talks about God's people, believers in Christ, as part of the body of Christ, connected to Jesus by faith. Putting these things on. Putting on the armor of God. In fact, that section in Ephesians 6 is probably the go-to passage on spiritual warfare for Christians in our present day. So how can we have hope in this dark world now? By faithful Christians doing God's work, or I should say God doing his work. God acting through his faithful people who put on the armor of God. Weak people though we are, we are weak, okay? In ourselves, we are weak. But with him, we are strong. When we put on the armor of God, we are strong, okay? So what is the armor of God? Well, Jesus apparently is putting it on in Isaiah 55. And then Paul, no doubt, I mean, he's drawing from, he was an expert in Old Testament. He's drawing from this imagery. He's drawing from this language in Isaiah 55 when he's writing Ephesians 6 under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What is he doing? The armor of God is Christ's armor that you and I have the privilege of putting on. You know what? I I like to view the armor of God like this. It is Christians who know the gospel and really, really, really believe the gospel and live it out. Okay? The armor of God. It's not something we just kind of haphazardly put on, like, oh, I think I kind of need the breastplate of righteousness today. Hell and salvation, I don't really need that. Sword of the Spirit? Nah, I'm alright with that. I'm alright without that. No, it's the armor of Christ that you and I need to put on. It's making the truth of the gospel ours, owning it and living it out. Like I said at the very beginning, what if you and I. Because we have the privilege of putting on a breastplate of righteousness, which I think points to the righteousness of Christ that is given to us by virtue of faith in Jesus. So God now sees us as righteous in Christ. What if you lived like that every day? God would do powerful things in your life and through your life, in my life and through my life. Now I'm not saying we don't live this out. I'm just saying, man, so when I say God's real time action in the present, I mean that God acting in and through his people who put on the armor that he gives them to put on. God in the present day we live in wars against darkness and evil and sin and injustice through his people. <clears throat> full of the Holy Spirit, going in confidence, knowing the gospel of Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians 5, verse 8 says this, But since we, have, since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ. Putting on righteousness and salvation-like armor means that all that Jesus has done for me and you is not somehow a compartment of my life, but I need to put it on like the most important piece of clothing I have. I desperately need to put it on. There's something about being in the fray whether it is fighting against sin in our own life or serving others in the power of God's spirit, that gives us hope. There's something about being isolated from others and consumed with our own lives that fills us with a hopelessness and a despair. Matthew 5 says that Christians, Jesus says in Matthew 5, that Christians are called to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We can only do that when we put on God's armor that he gives us in Christ. What does light do in a dark room? It chases the darkness away. Anyone ever turn on a light switch and heard the darkness say, no, I will not leave. Of course not. So you and I are called to be light and salt. God acting in us and through us. In this dark world we live in. So we can have hope because of God's real time action in the present among his people. I mean, I don't know about you, but I just, I think. Think about doing life together as a community of believers here at Real Life Church. Wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be amazing? And I and I trust that it is, but let's, what if we were, what if we were very deliberate and intentional at working toward this? We said, we want this place to be a haven of hope. We want to work with God. We want God to work in and through us so that real life church is this place where hope is like coming out of our ears and coming out of the doors. It's just bursting out. And forth from us. That is God's real time action in the present, among His people, believing the gospel and living it. Number three, we can have hope because of God's promised action in the future. God's supreme action in the future, although we pray for God to do lots of things in the future individual things, God, we need this, we need to see you work in this way in this next week. But God's supreme action in the future, which is the consummation of all of our hope and all of our aspirations, is that Jesus Christ will come again. When we sing that song, we believe in God the Father, we believe in Jesus Christ, we believe in the Holy Spirit, and he's given us new life. We believe in the crucifixion, that he conquered death and the resurrection. Sometimes that's where we end. And he's coming back again. Wow, he's coming back again. This is part of the gospel. This is what the apostles preached. Jesus is coming again. Our greatest hope is that Christ is coming once again, and he will complete what he started. He will consummate. He'll bring everything to a climactic end at his own appearing, and we will be perfectly saved. Paul called it this. He called the second coming of Christ the blessed hope and the appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We can have hope. This is hope that doesn't go here, doesn't go all the way. The final hope of all the apostles was not that they would be able to sail off into the sunset and retirement. It's that Jesus Christ was coming again. He rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven. And he was going to come again. And they longed for it. And Christ coming. When Christ comes. He will come in both judgment and salvation. And we see that in Isaiah 59 here. So first notice. He comes in vengeance and judgment. To exact salvation justice in a world full of injustice of course king jesus is going to come with perfect justice verses 17 the second part and verse 18 says this not only did he put on a breastplate of righteousness and helmet of salvation but he also put on garments of vengeance for clothing and he wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak Verse 18, according to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will render repayment. Jesus will come again with measure for measure justice. Perfect justice. And who gets the justice? It's adversaries, it's enemies. It's those who stiff arm Jesus, however religious or irreligious they are. It's those who stiff arm him. It's those who he offers amnesty, he offers friendship to all who will come. It's those who say, I don't want it. His people will not receive wrath. I already read that earlier in 1 Thessalonians 5. Paul says, You are not destined for wrath, but for salvation. When Jesus comes, there will be no escape, no matter how remote his enemies are. Talks about the coastlands. The farthest reaches the most remote islands, he will find them, and justice will be served. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, 8. And the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. No injustice will be swept under the rug, the cosmic rug of the universe, if there were one. Jesus will see to it. He will come with perfect justice. No one will be treated unfairly, not one person. Now, if you're like me, You might be thinking, okay, but I've done bad things, right? Done bad things very recently ago. Jesus executes perfect justice in one of two ways, either in himself on the cross for all who trust him. So your sins and my sins have been taken away. And the justice that we rightly deserve fell on Jesus. But the other way is by by Jesus in judgment at his coming. Now, why is this good news? Why should this lift our hopes? Now, he comes in salvation too. We're going to get to that. But why should this lift us in hope? Let me ask you a question. Is anybody outraged? by ISIS beheading Christians and Muslims in Iraq, hunting Christians and their children and cutting their heads off. They will not get off the hook. They won't get away with it. And we should rejoice in that. Is anybody bothered by 50 million babies dead in our nation? hundreds of millions worldwide it won't go unnoticed we should rejoice in that that should give us hope do you care about thousands of young women and even girls sold into the sex trafficking industry it should give us hope that the perpetrators where whatever rock they are under will be found and they'll get their due Slavery, racism, bigotry of all kind around the world and here at home, historically and present day, will be judged by Jesus Christ perfectly. And the wrongs that you personally have suffered will be made right by Jesus when he comes. It should give us hope. That's why Paul said in Romans 12, Leave room for the wrath of God. Don't be a vigilante because God says vengeance is mine. Every enemy of human, of human flourishing will be totally destroyed by Jesus Christ, whether it is Ebola or terrorism or poverty. It'll be eradicated, destroyed by Jesus. It has no chance when he comes. He will slay it with the breath of his mouth. It's not hard for him. He will do it. And the world will be freed. From evil and darkness forever. Forever. And then those of us who trust Christ. We're going to be with him forever. In a world on an earth. That is totally free. From everything that defiles. And corrupts. What an amazing thing. But he doesn't just come in judgment. He also comes in salvation. And it's a widespread salvation. One that reaches all the nations. Verse 19 says, So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. Reverence and godly fear and trust will be known from the west to the rising of the sun suggesting the whole world he will see to it right at the end of the verse it says for he will come he will come he's not leaving it up to anyone else to do it he will come like a rushing stream which the world which the wind of the lord drives verse 20 and a redeemer will come to zion to those in jacob who turn from transgression declares the Lord. Verse 20 is quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 11, indicating that the Jewish people themselves, ethnic Jewish people themselves, who now anyways, largely reject Jesus as the Messiah, will in mass come to believe in Christ, come to put their trust in Jesus, For right before that, in Romans 11, verse 25, Paul says, all Israel will be saved. And then he quotes this verse in in, in, um, Isaiah 59, verse 20. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. A large-scale end time in gathering Of Jewish people to Jesus Christ. How glorious. (laughs) Jesus is amazing. You think he is? For he is for us. He is not against us. Brothers and sisters, your future is bright. I don't know exactly what you're going... I don't know exactly what all of you are going through right this very moment. But your future is bright. I say that on the authority of God's word. I'm not saying that just to try to give you a little pick-me-up. I just spent the last 40 minutes trying to show you. Your future is bright. Jesus has done everything in the past. So that he is now and forever for you and not against you. He is at work in the present right now to all who open up to him. And give themselves to Jesus day after day after day. And he will complete and consummate our salvation. And deal with injustice and sin and evil once for all. Our future is bright. You agree with me? The the future. Now this, maybe you don't agree with. I want to tell you this though. The future of the world is bright planet earth is bright and as though this wasn't enough in verse 21 <clears throat> god says and i make a promise to you regarding these things as for me this is god talking now god hasn't i mean isaiah spoken for god and the people have spoken back to god this is god speaking Himself, he says, as for me, putting my name on this, step aside, Isaiah, I'm putting my name on this. His name is on all of it, okay? But he says, as for me, this is my covenant with them. I think he's talking about with them being his people, believers. This is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you. When he says, my spirit that's upon you, I think he's talking about the Messiah. My spirit that's upon you, Jesus. And the words that I put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord. From this time forth and forevermore. God makes a covenant with you and I and all of his people everywhere. As if what he said already isn't enough. He says, as for me, I'm making this covenant with you. You can bank on everything that I've said. No matter what you see with your human eyes. It's lying to you. An ultimate reality. The covenant is, is in the, the covenant that God gives us is in the giving of Jesus Christ himself. God's commitment to all that I said, all that I tried to say accurately this morning is as strong as his commitment to himself. That's a strong commitment. God cannot and will not lie. God is faithful to all that he says. It doesn't get any stronger than the kind of commitment God is giving us here, the kind of promise that God is giving us. Christians have an incredibly bright future. This morning, I want to urge you, not in a passive way, not in a, I've done that before, I'll do it later. I want to urge you now to push all your chips In the middle of the table and give yourself to Jesus in a fresh way today. He's our only hope. He's our only hope. Personally, as a church, as a nation, for the entire world. He is better than anything else you have going on in life. No matter how good it is, He's better. No witness. He's better. He really is. Okay? So, I want to close this way. I want us to direct our attention to Christ right now. I read a quote yesterday. I'm not going to get it exactly right. But it said, it is so powerful. I'm going to put it my way, okay? It is so powerful to stop what we're doing and sit and consider that Jesus Christ is real. I'm not just believing because my parents told me. I'm not just believing because I kind of go to church and get, you know. No, he's real, okay? So I want us to direct our attention to Christ right now. I want, to con- I want us to consciously give ourselves to Jesus afresh today, allowing him and asking him to create this kind of hope in us so, the banner over our lives is this. Now and forever, He is for me. He is not against me. He's proven it through Christ. Pray with me. Direct your attention to Christ. Fling yourself at him in your heart. And ask him to create this hope deep within. Jesus, you are the hope of every nation, of every city, of every neighborhood, of every church, of every home, of every individual person. Of those of us gathered here this morning, you are our only hope. And you are real. You came. You lived among us. You died. You rose again. You're real today, living in and through us by your Spirit. And you will come visibly, physically again to save and judge. You're our only hope. I pray now that, well, I don't just pray this. We give ourselves to you. We just give ourselves to you. We fling ourselves at you, Christ, afresh. Would you create in us this hope that only you can create in us through the truth of your word and the working of your spirit? Come and do it, I pray. That we would fundamentally be men and women, a church, a people, oozing hope, overflowing in hope. There is a lot out in the world, when we get our eyes off you, that can cause us to despair. There's a lot in our own lives that can cause us to despair. God, I pray we'd have confidence in defiant faith to see it all the way it is, and say, but Christ is better. He's stronger. He goes deeper than the lowest pit. And he is stronger than the biggest obstacle. Create this hope in us, Lord, I pray. And Lord, I know, I'm sure, that as we gather here this morning, there are some who are truly facing desperately difficult situations, circumstances. Explode upon them, I pray. Wave after wave of your love, of your mercy, of fresh hope to face the day and the future confident and expecting good from your hand. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen.